Scott Crawford is Director of Operations at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. He will join us in a few minutes ahead of the virtual induction of the Class of 2021, which will be held on Tuesday, November 16th. The Hall of Fame, um, like every other organization, Hall of Fame, whatever, is uh, busy dealing with the aftermath, what you call the aftermath of COVID-19, but it's like every other organization, sort of figuring out how it goes about doing stuff as we emerge from the pandemic. And uh, in the case of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, it's been a couple of years since an induction ceremony. We'll talk to Scott Crawford about that. Gabe Kapler joins us as well. Buster Posey is expected to announce his retirement today from the San Francisco Giants. Now, during the break, I did some some research, Kevin, because you and I had this argument it's not an argument. Well, okay, let's just say this. Let me, first of all, first of all, in your mind, never mind Jorge Posada, in your mind, is Buster Posey a Hall of Famer? Yes. Okay. Uh, the whole argument about whether or not he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, a couple of things need to be said. One, there are voters I'm not one of them. There are voters who will never, there are voters who don't think anybody should be a first ballot hall of famer. So therefore they don't vote for anybody the first That's time. On the ballot. It is dumb. Um, and part of that is the result of the hall of fame process where you can vote for 10 players. Sometimes people look at a ballot and go, ah, I like these 10 players. This guy's pretty good, but he's not one of my top 10. And then the next year, hey, guess what? All of a sudden, the ballot's so bad, that guy's a sixth player. So theoretically, what you're saying is you weren't a Hall of Famer last year when you were retired, but a year later when you're still retired, you're a Hall of Famer. Some voters vote for that player to keep him on the ballot, right? Yeah, yeah, people do that. I, I, I voted Carlos Delgado. First of all, I think Carlos Delgado had an excellent case, but I also knew that it was going to be touch and go whether or not he'd stay in the ballot. Mm-hmm. I voted for him. I would be willing to bet that everybody in the Toronto chapter did. Didn't work. But... Um, so we're in agreement that Buster Posey and Buster Posey's numbers, you know, they, they, they speak for themselves, MVP, uh, multiple all-star three world series. Our friend Jay Jaffe has the, uh, has, has put together in his book, the Cooperstown case book. He's developed something which we called the jaws metric. And Kevin, just, this is, this is going to help your case. So just work with me on this. But one of the things he does is he looks at a player's career war based on their seven-year peak war. In other words, seven years, good career. What were your numbers when you were at your peak? Buster Posey currently uh, is 14th with a war seven, as we call it, of 44.9. The average for Hall of Fame catchers, okay, the average for Hall of Fame catchers, war seven is 34.8. So I'm sorry, he's at 36 Point six war seven. Now you brought up Jorge Posada and I kind of rolled my eyes and your argument was, well, give me your Jorge Posada argument. He, he played a lot of games. He played a lot of years. He had a lot, lots of at bats. He hit 125 more homers than he did. He hit, he had what? 300 more RBIs. He did it in New York, which is a big deal. He had one more world series win than, than Posada or, or than uh, Buster Posey. I, I'm not saying Buster Posey's not a Hall of Famer, but Posada got what four percent of the vote in the Hall of Fame. I just, I, I, I sometimes think there's just not one way to look at certain players as Hall of Famers, and I think body of work for me, WAR is part of it. 
but it's not the be-all, end-all. That, that can't be your first argument is he had a six-war however many seasons he had it. That That's for me, it's not, you, you look at body of work, you have, look how many years he's a catcher, how many games he caught, what was his performance when he was catching. All the things that go into being a Hall of Famer, you can't leave out besides of the all the, the numbers that we look at and how you judge players in 2021. I, For me, Jorge Posada's a Hall of Famer. Other other people may not think that. Would you agree that Buster Posey is a better has was a better defensive catcher and is a better defensive catcher than Jorge Posada? I, I would numbers say so. Yes. Again, that gets back to the actual people that are throwing to these guys when it matters the most. And both of these catchers had opportunities to be in World Series, multiple World Series. And you've heard how pitchers talk about Buster Posey. You've heard how pitchers talk about Posada. It's these again are, I understand what numbers say about Posada, but it is, it is body of work. It is when he has body of work on the biggest stage, how's he done? And those are, look, if you're Posada and you're hearing people talk about Buster Posey, who you have better numbers than when it offensively now as a entire complete player base running and, and, you know, he's a, he hits for higher average. Buster Posey's a career 300 hitter. That's going to come into play. Yeah, Posada's, what, a 270 or 260 hitter. Okay, I give you that. But I just I just think it's when you're, when you're talking about one player who's been in New York and did it as long as Jorge Posada did it and only got 4% of the vote, and we're talking about Buster Posey the way we're talking about Buster Posey, is that a little unfair? Well, I'm going to say it is. Jorge Posada, if you look at his war for seven is 19th at 32.6. So he's behind Buster Posey, who was 14th. His jaws, the Jaffe measurement, puts him at 37.7. He's behind Buster Posey at 40.7. There are catchers in the Hall of Fame with worse numbers than than uh, than Jorge Posada. Worse measurements, I should say, than Jorge Posada. Uh, most of them went into the Hall of Fame. All of them went into the Hall of Fame much, much, much earlier. If you look at the catchers who are currently in the Hall of Fame, Johnny Bench, Gary Carter, Pudge Rodriguez, Carlton Fisk, Mike Piazza, Yogi Berra, they're all ahead of, of, uh, of both Posey and Posada. Bill Dickey, Gabby Hart, and Mickey Cochran, Ted Simmons, they're all ahead of him as well. But my point is this, and Roy Campanella, Roy Campanella is just a shade better than Jorge Posada. My point is this, I... I I think it's a. I think Jorge Posada should have more than four percent as well. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's that's a travesty. Um, Posada's got four hundred more games to played. That that's a big deal to me. It, it it is, but I think that again, this is going to d- depend on strength of ballot and all that. I think it's going to be easier to make a case for Buster Posey going into the Hall of Fame, given the way most voters currently analyze catchers than it is to make Jorge a case for Jorge Posada. Um, I, I will say this. I, I'll vote for Buster Posey the first time he's on the ballot. Um, but I, I never use all my 10 picks. I'm, I just don't. By that point, I use my recent picks. I've, I've picked all the steroid guys just because Bonds, Clemens. I don't want to rehash that argument. It, Best hitter of my generation. You're saying there's not ten Hall of Famers on the ballot. No, I don't That's always. That's what think, you're trying yeah, to say. I don't. I don't. You're not voting just to be voting. No, I. There you go. Yeah, I don't have to use the ten, and I really prefer having a small. I'd be like smaller you. hall, but I, I am saying that I will. I would look at, at Buster Posey's at, at Buster Posey, and I would put him down. He would be in my first ballot. He would be in my first ballot. Um, 
I'm sure most people think like you. I'm just saying if you're Jorge Posada and you're looking at your numbers compared to his numbers and where you did it. I think Buster Posey's going to be one of those. I think Buster Posey's going to be one of those players that the evolution of advanced stats is go it one, it has favored him. Two, I think it's going to favor him even more. And, you know, I, I, I look at this as well. Who is the next Buster Posey? Where where are the next generation of catchers? I mean, the next, I guess the next catcher eligible for the Hall of Fame probably would be Adier Molina. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's going to go in on the first ballot, although right now his numbers are behind Jorge Posadas, uh, if you look at 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 at, at Jaws. Um, so, yeah, and, and Sal Perez... Sal Perez is, I, I think, the guy after that that'll end up going in. Who the hell knows how long Sal Perez is going to play? He may not. <laughs> I don't think he's certainly on the verge of retiring or anything like yeah. that. But those are the guys to me. Posey, Moline, and Perez. Those are the those are the guys that you know are next up in the are next up in the list. I just think there's. I, I'm with you. He's a Hall of Famer. I just think there's there's a lot of different ways to judge who goes into the Hall of Fame, and sometimes we leave people out. But, well, the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, there is no debate on the 2021 class. Uh, 16 individuals and one team that made significant contributions to the history of baseball in Canada will be inducted uh, in a virtual ceremony that will take place on Tuesday, November 16th. Scott Crawford is Director of Operations of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. He joins us on Blair and Barker. Scott, thanks for joining us. I, I trust you're keeping well. Uh, first thing I'm going to ask you, now, the hall is closed for the year, right? Correct. It's it's closed. Uh, you can still pre-book a tour if you want to come visit right. us, but you just can't walk up and uh, and come in. And how was the summer, given COVID, given the fact that we're gradually reopening? It was pretty good once we opened. We didn't open until mid-July like the other museums in the province, but uh, people wanted to talk baseball. It was baseball season, so... We had a lot of interesting uh, conversations in the museum this summer. Hey, tell us about the class of 2021, and we should mention the 2020 class. There will be, we will have a, a, a I was going to say, a live induction for the class of 2020, correct? Yeah, next, uh, next June, June 18th in 2022, we'll induct our 2020 class that we haven't been able to induct right. yet. So it's a little confusing, but uh, it, it's going to get done for those four individuals. Okay, tell us about this year's class. Yeah, it's a, it's a group of our biggest class ever. There's 16 individuals and, and one team, and they're all really historic uh, individuals and teams that, that you might not have heard of. They've all passed away, um, and that, that's really how their story has been hidden and not told, and, and we're able to do it. There's, there's players and executives and umpires and, and, uh, and all kinds of uh, interesting stories to be told. Scott, as director, what's been the hardest thing for you through all this? And, and uh, yeah, it's got to be fun parts of it for you. What, what's the fun part of it? It's, it's baseball. I mean, you get to talk baseball every day, whether it's about, you know, the current playoffs and World Series or whether it's the, uh, the inducting and learning about these old individuals and, and their stories. And, and these, these stories are really, they were hidden and, and forgotten about. And, and, you know, one fellow we're inducting, Fred Thomas, he's considered one of the most forgotten uh, Canadian sport heroes ever, and and we're really able to tell their story now, so that's pretty cool. Scott, one of the things, in addition to being a museum and a Hall of Fame, there's also a research center uh, in St. Mary's at the at, at at the Hall of Fame, and I, I find this particular this particularly intrigues me with this class as someone who who's, has a history degree. The fact that this class was put together 
by a a research committee and you know being able to being able to look at the history of this game across the country which is we've talked about this look I grew up in Manitoba we played baseball all the time everybody who played hockey played baseball there were there were Negro League Hall of Famers who played baseball in Carmen Manitoba and Winnipeg Manitoba barnstormed all this stuff there's a huge almost untapped history of baseball in Canada, particularly in rural Canada. How significant is this class because of that? Because I look at the areas, right? Lawrenceville, Quebec, Port Hope, uh, Vancouver, Wellington, BC, Charlottetown, Devon, New Brunswick, Newcastle, New Brunswick, La Prairie, Quebec. It it really does speak to the national reach of baseball, doesn't it? It does. And and we put the committee together, helped us pick the 17 inductees was, was spread across Canada. I mean, it was led by, our own Hall of Famer Bill Humber and in uh, Andrew North, who runs the Center for Canadian Baseball Research, and they put together a committee across Canada, and, and we really dove into each province and, and looked for the best, of the best. I mean, the list we started at about you know 100 names, and we narrowed it down uh, to these 17 because there's there's so many stories, and like you talked about, there's so much history in this country from from every province, and and uh, we we think we nailed the nailed these 17 pretty good. Scott, does the fact that there are so many more tools available to people to do research now, does that make this does that make the job of unearthing these great stories easier or in some ways does it make it harder? Because you mentioned you had a lot you had a lot of names and, and basically the committee's being asked to judge, I would imagine, a hundred really fascinating, vastly different stories. It was. I mean, you're right. It's good and bad. I mean the everything's online and, and the newspapers are online and whatnot, so it allows digging uh, you can do easier from your from your computer from your home instead of having to travel across country. And Canada is a pretty large country, so to get out to BC or to get out to the East Coast, and it's it's hard to do. But now you can now you can do it from your home, and and it just allows you to dig into these stories. And and yeah, you still need to travel and need to talk to people, but uh, which is the the time consuming part. But you can really do a lot from your from your house and get great detail. Scott, you've had to have a, a favorite story. What, what is what is that? Yeah, of these guys, I, I look at uh, two. I mean, I look at Ernie Quigley, who was an umpire from New Brunswick, and actually he was the umpire in the Black Sox World Series in 1919, which is which is pretty cool. He did two games behind home plate, and of course was on the field for all the other games. And you know, we all know about the 1919 World Series, and and there was a Canadian umpiring that <laughs> that series, so that's that's pretty pretty cool and interesting to hear. And and the one other one I find really interesting, of course, Jackie Robinson's always in the news, and and the uh, you know we're going to induct the president of the Montreal Royals, uh, Hector Racine, and he was president of the Royals when Jackie Robinson came to Montreal. So his stories and and whatnot would be just non-ending, and and to hear so many uh, interesting aspects of how how they had to deal with uh, Jackie Robinson coming into the game. Can you tell us a bit about the, and because I love this name, the 1877 London Tecumsehs. What do we need to know about them? Yeah, they were, uh, of course, out of London, Ontario. They, they played at Labatt Park, which was called Tecumseh Park back in the 1870s. Uh, Labatt Park is, of course, the oldest continuous used park in, in North America. And they won the uh, International Association pennant and league championship that year. It was the first year in the league. It was they were in it, and they beat the Alleghenies of Pittsburgh five uh, two in that game, and it became the first uh, champions from Canada. Okay, I got you mentioned Labatt Park. I got to throw this out there. We had Dan Evans on uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the Field of Dreams game and how baseball is 
obviously that was a it was a huge hit. It was a ratings hit. It was an artistic hit. The players loved it. There wasn't anybody involved in that that didn't didn't uh, that didn't come away thinking it was a great thing. And we talked to Dan about how the NHL's kind of gone after these outdoor games and tried to create special events. And I'm wondering now. This is hugely hypothetical and really blue sky. But I got to ask you: Do you think there is a time, or there will be a time, Scott, where we may have a discussion about Major League Baseball holding one of those games at Labatt Park, or whether it's a, an exhibition game, something along those lines? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, Labatt Park is the best park in Canada. I mean, it's it's 30 minutes away here from the Hall of Fame. And it's it's got a dream. It's got the backscape, the backscape like over the outfield. When you look at like the Pittsburghs and the Cincinnatis and the Clevelands, it's got the, the skyline behind it, and it's got a beautiful park. I mean, it used to be a Double A park for the uh, Detroit Tigers, so it's it's great quality. And uh, you know, it's situated good. I'm mean, well. It's, I mean, it's two hours in Toronto, two hours in Detroit, so it's easy to get to. And and a Detroit uh, Toronto game would look would mm. look awfully good in that ballpark. It certainly would. Scott, listen, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with this and uh we shall well we'll definitely we'll definitely see in we'll definitely see you next summer for sure. Thanks, Scott. Perfect. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Scott. That's uh Scott Crawford. He is the director of operations for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. How about that? Just think about the Detroit Tigers, Toronto Blue Jays playing at Labatt Park. Yeah. It'd be cool. It would it would be now there's there would be a lot of things go into it. It, it would have to be up to par to big league standards. I tell you what, it'd be easier to do it there than the, than in a, in a freaking cornfield in the middle of a of a small town. It'd be easier to do it there. Maybe. Hmm. I'm just. It'd be, a good, it'd be a good idea. A lot of things would have to go right for that to happen. But yeah, I'm with you. It's especially if if Detroit is better, a better team gets bigger names. With all the Blue Jays names that they have, it would be a, a big time draw because that's what you want. You want difference. You want young. You want yeah. energetic. You want you know the bow flow and and Vladdy doing his thing, and then you could add maybe a Correa to the mix. Wouldn't that Southern, be fun? Southern Ontario, that? Southern Ontario, man, big big Detroit Tiger country, big Toronto Blue yeah. Jay country. A lot of folks from that region. There's those those Tigers allegiances still run deep. I mean, Ernie Harwell was the voice of baseball for a lot of folks in uh, southwestern Ontario, and it would be, that would be spectacular. It would be an awful lot of fun. Maybe we've planted the seed in somebody's mind. Hmm. It would probably take, I don't know, uh, you'd probably need a Hall of Fame to get involved. You might need a broadcaster to get involved. You might need a team to get involved. Two teams, I would think you definitely need two teams to get involved. I don't know. Yeah, you'd have to have two teams. You'd have to have somebody you could create. That would, well, that would want to make the field better. You create and, content for a TV network. I'm just saying. Huh. I'm just saying. Yeah. Down the road, that would that would be something sure to think about. It, 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 for me, it's all about the two teams. There's nothing you know, like writing checks with other people's how money. How about there? that? When it's, it's not your money, the it's best re- thing really ever. easy to do that. It's for me, it's about the two teams. It's, it's like it's like the field of dreams and the cornfield. The White Sox and the Yankees made that. The game made that. The walk off hit made that. Mm. You know, it was the. It's fun to watch somebody hit a home run in corn. But do you want to see it again? It really is. Do you well, want to see it again, or is it about the two teams? Well, let me tell you this. Two of the most memorable things I've seen this year were home run into a cornfield and a home run over a damn train track. That's pretty good. We've had a pretty good base. When you can say, when you can say that you've had baseball in one year, you had a dude hit a home run over train track. And as Mm -hmm. I said, I don't care. It could be 105 feet. If you can say I hit a ball over the train tracks, 
that says something because we all played in a field that was near a train track or something like that. And we all tried to hit the ball over it. And of course, when we did it, that 200 foot home run became uh-huh. 550 feet. And no, all you're looking at me. I never did hit a 200 foot home run. I would admit it. But I'm saying it was a pretty good year. We had baseball in the cornfield and the dude hit a home run over, yeah, over the train, train, over the train that's track. Outstanding. That, that's been done before the, the walk off Homer to in a cornfield that, that, that I'll give you that one. That's pretty cool. Every kid, good. every kid would be throwing up rocks and hitting them with a broomstick. Oh, come on. I know I did. Oh, B, you never threw up. You're not that old. Like I could see, I was there when the, Hey, I was was there when the broomstick was invented. All right. I was there when the broomstick was invented. I, I, you did not throw rocks up and hit it with a broomstick all the time. When I was was a kid, that's all I did. You had a Hillary and Brad, Bradsby (laughs) back or whatever the hell it was. What What the hell's the name of that company? Hillerich and Brad. Uh, I don't know. It's called Rawlings. No, no, Hillary. It's called gonna, Rawlings. Not, not Hillary, and Bradsby. Oh, is that is that an American manufacturing? Is that, buggy, still is that buggy and carriage time? They, no, no. <laughs> Do they have motorized vehicles they, then? They actually were the company that started Louisville Slugger. Oh, so yeah, that, I, I was. I didn't grow up in that era. I, I grew up in actual Louisville Slugger and Rawlings, and okay, that, right. that's what I was. But Dude, I, did, I did. Don't give me I, the I, broomstick. I had, I had fun with the brooms. I cut the broomstick in half because it was hard to swing the the the. The length of the broomstick, the way I wanted to, and hit it as far as I did. But yeah, I used to do that all the time. My dad it, would get mad at me in a cornfield. You stood yeah. out there in the middle of a cornfield. Three hundred fifty acres. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. How could there's you no, do that? There's, there's no be no room lights. to move in a cornfield. There's, there's There'd no be no room lights. to move in a cornfield. You don't do it in the cornfield. Well, you just you told do it on me the you outside did. of the cornfield and hit it into the cornfield. You just told What's me. What's wrong with you? Holy. All right. Yeah. It's fun. Time. Yeah, I just didn't. I, I I just imagined that you always had a bat lying around. You could use a bat, and you were hitting the baseball. That took. Like, all, I could see your dad throwing out. a ball to you in the edge. My of dad the had to work. Somebody had to pay the bills. So my dad was working. My mother was working. I got off school. What was I going to do? I grew up on a big farm. It kept me out of trouble. I go over there. I take my broomstick. I occasionally would would you know, whack the corn stalk, and my dad would get mad at me because you know that was that was wasting money. So right. best thing was I got rocks. Got me a whole bag of rocks. Throw the rocks in the air and hit the hit it with the broomstick until the broomstick actually broke because I'd hit the same spot over and over. I was that good, Jeff. So you got it. in the same spot over and over again and break my broomstick. And then I would go get the other broomstick that my dad had to buy because I took his other broomstick and then he would get mad at me that way. He's always mad at me. So you got it down and got it sweeping. That's well said. It is indeed. Uh, Gabe Kapler is the manager of the San Francisco Giants. It is a big day for the Giants today. Buster Posey is announcing his retirement. Future Hall of Famer Buster Posey is announcing his retirement. So I'm going to talk to Gabe about that as well. But also an initiative that he is involved in, the Pipeline for Change Foundation, uh, which, uh, well, which is, is... I mean, it's multifaceted. It's it's designed to increase the awareness of mental health on and off the baseball field, but also at this time of year, it's something Gabe is Gabe Kapler has been particularly outspoken about. And I tweeted out a link to uh, to his his Twitter account where he addresses it, and that's the hiring practices in Major League Baseball. Look, we've talked about how, for a variety of reasons, we need all our sports. To become more inclusive. We know that the NHL right now is going through that horrible Kyle Beach storm. And one of the things that 
I think we can all agree on is when you, one of the ways you overcome a culture of silence is bringing new voices, new faces, new approaches into the decision-making process. Try to make it less homogenized. Try, try, quite frankly, to make it a lot less white and a lot less male. And that's the only way, the only way I can describe it. It makes for a better thought process. It makes for a better decision-making process. It's something Gabe Kapler believes in, something he's talking about. Gabe Kapler joins us next. You're listening to Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Well, we had a conversation around the dinner table at home earlier this summer when my daughter was home and, and um, just kind of looking back at everything that's gone on for the past couple of years and, and um, you know, just the, I, I don't know, I don't know whether it was the pandemic that kind of sparked a lot of the discussion that we're seeing now in sports. Maybe we all had a lot of time to, because uh, we couldn't do much else. We had a lot of time to think about important stuff and maybe um, more time to consider how we looked at things and, and what we thought of certain things in society in general. But it, it just seemed, it, we were talking about this at home, it just seemed as if the past 24 months, 18 months, that so many, so many weighty issues uh, presented themselves and 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 required required real thought as opposed to simply looking at something, you know, thinking about it for a couple of minutes and then moving on to something else. I mean, I, I, I think if maybe if anything good has come out of this, has come out of COVID-19 and has come out of the fact that we were shut down for the longest time, it's that we did have discussions about stuff that we may have swept under the rug before or in the very least just kind of shrugged and said, well, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to, uh, to, uh, to, to my day-to-day existence or my job. Um, I think it's safe to say we've all become more aware of things like social justice. Frankly, even those of us who may, you know, there may be people out there who don't want to be aware of it. The fact of the matter is it's pretty much, it's pretty much out there. And uh, if you're any type of human being, you spend at least a certain amount of time thinking about some of the things you may have felt, some of the things that people around you may have felt. We've had, of course, in, in, in the NHL recently, the, um, the Kyle Beach situation and uh, you know, the, the allegations, the sexual abuse allegations he made against former Blackhawks coach. And of course, there's, a, there's an ongoing fallout from that. And frankly, a lot of people are being called to account. And I've kind of thought and understand that I'm speaking as a 62-year-old white guy who's been pretty lucky. Um, I kind of thought that one of the things that needs, one of the things that needs to happen is the people who make decisions in general, the group of people who make decisions for sports leagues, for sports teams, for players associations. I'm going to throw that out there. We need to broaden the type of people who are in decision-making positions. We need, and I'm not just talking about people with different opinions. I am talking about we need to move away from a largely male-dominated 
decision-making process. We certainly need more visible minorities. We need more racialized uh, uh, people involved in these discussions. And I think if you do that, if you bring more people in, if you broaden, if you broaden the collective, I think you make smarter decisions. Our next guest uh, was named National League Manager of the Year by the Sporting News last week. Um, I'll admit I'm surprised the team wasn't in the World Series. Huh. Uh, some of us thought they were going to go to the World Series going into the postseason. But more than that, uh, Gabe Kapler, the manager of the San Francisco Giants, has really sort of stepped out here and taken the lead with his Pipeline for Change Foundation. I tweeted out a link to uh, a, a a video he did regarding hiring practices in Major League Baseball because we are in the hiring season, and also a conversation he had with Drew Robinson about ending the stigma of mental health on and off the field. And uh, we wanted to have Gabe, Cap- Gabe Kapler on even before Buster Posey announced his retirement. So, Gabe, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's a hectic day. We'll talk about Buster, but I, I, congratulations on a great year. Um, but I want to I, I want to talk about the pipeline for change because it's just it's so timely right now, and I mean it's timely anytime, but especially now because we are talking about hiring practices in baseball, and we're you know we got CBA talks coming up here. Maybe some of those things will have to be addressed there. Maybe mental health will be addressed there as well. Can you maybe? Just tell us a bit about the Pipeline for Change Foundation and, and kind of kind of how, what spurred you to take the lead here? Sure. First, first, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like we all have a, an obligation to use our platforms to make changes. And look, for you guys, that's, uh, you know, a, a, a large audience, you know, kind of hanging on your every word. For me, it's, it's baseball fans and people around the country um, who, who follow sports. But either way, I think these are, these are the ways that we, we make the world a little bit better. So thanks for that opportunity. Uh, Pipeline for Change Foundation, and, and you touched on it before I hopped on, is devoted to diversifying uh, positions of power in, in, in sports. Uh, we feel like uh, the more diverse the group of decision makers is, uh, the more likely there is representation and the more likely we make quality decisions for the future of our, of our sport. But much more importantly, I think we set an example for hiring practices, um, you know, in, in various industries here in, in San Francisco tech, for example. Um, I just feel like we, the, the more different ideas, thoughts, backgrounds, ethnicities that are kind of in these most important leadership positions, setting direction, the more likely it is that we just, we live in a better world. Our sports are better. Our, our fans feel more represented. People feel like they have more opportunities for upward mobility once they get into um, baseball and other sports. So these are the things that we've been thinking about at, at Pipeline for Change, and, and I'm happy to discuss further. I was going to say, you know, uh, look, I, I covered my first year covering baseball was 1989. I, I, I remember, hey, just, you know, strap it on, go out and play, play hurt, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff. Gabe, when did you start maybe thinking differently about things like inclusivity and, 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 and mental health, which my friend Kevin Barker wants to talk about here in particular, but was there a moment, uh, was it a gradual process? Was it simply a matter of, Hey, you know what? I'm in a position of authority. Now I can command 
a platform, so I am going to talk about these things. I think first, it, 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 this goes without saying, but my, my mother and father were a, a pretty important influence um, on me. They both, you know, marched in the civil rights movement, you know, heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak. I have a photograph on my wall in my office of him, um, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, commanding a huge group of people. And I, I, I sent that picture to my mom and dad years ago, um, a photograph of the photograph. And they said, we were at that, we were at that March. And so um, in my house growing up, uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, those were things that were talked about at the, at the dinner table. So to your point, um, you know, I, I didn't have as much of, of, a, of an audience or a platform. And again, it's small, relatively speaking, but I do feel like there's um, an opportunity here to, to reach that small audience and talk about the things that were important to my family and are important in society. And you talked about, uh, you know, how COVID kind of brought these things front and center. I, I think that's true, but they were going on long before and they'll be going on long after. And, and I just feel like we have this kind of cool opportunity to reach people right now. Gabe, yeah, when I was in the minor leagues, the mental health part of it, when I, when I watched your conversation with Drew Robinson, that sort of hit home for me because I can remember, you know, just getting opportunities. And when I didn't get opportunities at the minor league level, trying to figure out how I was even going to pay my bills when the season was over. And I could just remember the mental part of that side was just, it was so hard on me. And I think my question would be, it's, you know, it's one thing to have this conversation at the big league level when you these players have all this money, but it's the minor league level. You can never, you know, learn too soon about just that part of it. How's that been going? How's that translating? And, and are you getting that message to the minor league level? I think we are. Um, Hunter Bishop is, is one of our, our big prospects. He's, um, he's at the Arizona Fall League right now. Um, he's kind of honing his skills. He's actually off to an excellent start in the Fall League, driving the baseball to the opposite field, um, running very well, throwing looks good. Like, so all of the things that are happening on the field are, are moving in the right direction. And he tweeted the other day tagging our EAP lead, um, our employee assistance program lead, Shana Alexander, who's responsible for mental, the mental health kind of department in, in our organization about how important it, it was for him that um, he's able to talk about his anxiety. And when he sees other athletes talking about their anxiety and depression, um, where, which like every clubhouse across the country, every locker room across the country has athletes suffering, clinically suffering with depression, clinically suffering with, with anxiety issues, and finally, for the first time, these things are, are being talked about openly. And, and what does that do? Obviously, it makes all of those athletes feel uh, heard and like they're not alone. But then getting back to the platform point, we talk about it. And we talk about it at the major league level. And all of a sudden, you know, people in, in our communities feel a little less alone and maybe a little bit more comfortable talking about the things they're wrestling with. Look, when we see a player with a, a, a strained hamstring, we actually – we can see him limp. We can see him struggling through that pain. But, you know, some of the mental health issues, you just can't see them, but they're just as debilitating. So we just need to be able to address these more effectively across sports and, and ultimately in society. You know, we had, uh, we had Doug Glanville on yesterday, and we were talking about Dusty Baker, and he made the point about every manager says, hey, I've got an open door. But he said, Dusty's, not only was Dusty's door open, but Dusty would walk through the door himself to go to you and say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Um, are, are, as a manager now, Gabe, are players, are players more willing to have that type of discussion 
with the manager because let's face it, the, the, the touch points for the player, yes, there are EAP programs and everything, but I think for a lot of players, the touch point is one, your position coach. Maybe you're a pitcher. The touch point's your, yeah. your pitching coach, but then it's your manager. Are, are guys, do you find players more willing to have that discussion with you or do you still have to approach them and kind of, you sure you're okay? You know, uh, everything okay at home? I think it's variable. So I, I definitely don't think it's the equivalent now of, of what happens when you have a, a physical injury. When you, you definitely talk about that with your physician coaches and with your manager, you're going to walk into the office and be like, Hey, you know, skip, I, I might not be able to go today. Um, this thing that that's happening for me is, is just barking and I might be a little bit compromised on defense. You might want to go with somebody else, right? That actually does happen. Either it happens through a trainer, it happens through a position coach or it happens directly with me. Very rarely do you, do you see or hear about a player that kind of wakes up with some dark thoughts, um, maybe just is going through uh, a, a lot of anxiety over something at home, perhaps there's family issues going on, where they just march into the manager's office and say, look, I'm just not equipped to, to go today. I'm not equipped to, to give you everything I have. And so what we're trying to do is create some, some more equality with physical injuries and some of these mental health issues. Um, we're getting closer, I think, players are willing to talk about it a little bit more, particularly with their position coaches. And, and as you mentioned with me, but we have a long way to go and a lot of work to do to make it comfortable so that we're, so that players don't believe that we're going to hold it over their heads and potentially um, evaluate them more critically because they're open about these mental health issues. It's just quite the opposite. We see it as mental toughness. If you're, you're game to have these conversations because we think we can support you better. Um, and, and I just don't personally think that mentally toughness is about not having any of these issues. Mental toughness is about dealing with them well. You know, it, it's really interesting hearing you say that because I, as you were talking, I, I couldn't remember when I read this article. I think it was, it was in April. Well, I know it was in April now because I found it. But you were asked about Buster Posey, who, of course, is, is, is announcing his retirement today. We're led to believe and you were asked about Buster Posey taking the year off last year to be with his family with the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. And, 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 and you drew in your own uh, experiences of taking a year off. And you actually thought, and Gabe, you're, I mean, you, you sure you, you were prescient here because you said, you know, I think this, is, this could actually be good for, Bust, for Buster. And, of course, Buster came back in 2021 and yeah, had a, had, a, had a phenomenal year. Can you just talk us a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about that, maybe the discussions you had with Buster or the thought process there? Because that does also kind of touch on this, does it not? Yeah, to some degree it does. I mean, particularly given like Buster's devotion to his family. And, and, and obviously, you know, Buster will announce what he wants to announce when he wants to announce it. So I don't want to be the one to confirm any of that. But what I'll say is, um, you know, the part of the reason he took that year off was to, to be with his family um, and to attend to his family. And, and he felt like that was more important than, than being on the field. And I certainly, and we certainly as an organization supported that initiative. And um, yes, I did have the experience of managing for a year after an Achilles tendon injury in the minor leagues for the Red Sox. Uh, what I'll say is I have never been close to the baseball player that, that Buster Posey has been. So I can't say I, I can fully relate to um, what it was like for him to take that year off. But what I can say is when I came back, I felt mentally fresher. My, my body felt like it was, it was healthier again. 
and I, and I was able to play three more years at the major league level. And I think 2008, the year I came back after that layoff was, was one of my better years as, as a major leaguer. Yeah, it was. So, um, and I, I, yeah, I really, I really hit left-handed pitching. Well, um, you know, ended up not that this matters all that much, but ended up the season with the 300 batting average and played really good defense. So it's a, qual- a quality year. So I, I was able to relate to what it felt like for Buster to come off the field and then come back. And obviously he's an elite talent. 2021, um, he was arguably the best, the best catcher in baseball. And certainly from our perspective, watching him every day, um, we don't do what we did without, you know, all of Buster's contributions on and off the field. Every, every player, uh, every manager, every coach tries to, at the end of the season, take little things that they want to get better at going into the next season. Is, what is those little things for you? I'm glad you asked that. So, and, and this is very tied into some of the mental health discussions um, that, that we've been having. I, I want to, so I think we've built, you know, a little bit of a foundation where people feel like they can talk um, that open door policy that Glanville mentioned with Dusty. And, and by the way, I agree that Dusty was an elite, elite communicator is an elite, elite communicator, but I think we can make it even easier for players to talk about both their physical injuries and the things that they're dealing with at home. For example, um, this past season, you know, Kev, it, this is no secret, but Kevin Gosman was dealing, um, dealing with some complications with his wife's pregnancy right in the middle of the season. And he had to fly back and forth more than anybody should have to in, in the middle of the season to attend to his family and, and his wife who was dealing with these complications. So I think we did a fine job of supporting Kevin through that. But I think we can do an even better job in, in those instances and get – so on one hand, it's just the right thing to do, to treat people with that respect, to give them that level of support. On another hand, it's actually a competitive advantage if you do that very well. You know, maybe when that player comes back, he's in a, a good position to attack the strike zone better, to rip his split off just a little bit better, to be better at his craft because he was supported well through that time. So – that will be one major initiative for 2022. Gabe, I wanted to ask you about uh, just a, very quickly about the World Series um, that 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 just concluded. Look, as someone who played the game, has managed the game, I mean, you you filled a lot of you know you filled a lot of executive executive positions, scout, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What do you see as a baseball guy when you see the Atlanta Braves? I, I see a very well-led uh, team, and I have a lot of respect for their coaches. Uh, Brian Snickers, an ex- excellent manager, um, but even going a step further, Walt Weiss, one of my favorite people in the game, um, just an excellent bench coach, and also may end up you know, being a manager again at some point. Uh, Ron Washington is one of the better position player coaches and infield instructors in all of baseball. He deserves another, another chance to, to manage. Um, interestingly, I think this is an opportunity to riff on on that topic. Mm-hmm. So we talked about uh, diversity in, in leadership positions. Um, I did have one of our, um, one of our black coaches, we had a conversation um, a, a few days ago. And one of the things that he mentioned is that he thinks, and I, and I believe it to be true that white coaches, managers have more opportunity to fall forward to fail at the major league level, to fail at the minor league level, but to be given multiple opportunities to make adjustments. Like perhaps their game strategy wasn't where it needed to be. Perhaps their, their leadership skills were not fully developed at that point, but white 
coaches tend to get more opportunities and sometimes even recycled, whereas sometimes native Spanish-speaking coaches, managers, leaders, executives, don't get that second chance and don't have that opportunity to fall forward. What he said is sometimes they just fall away. Hmm. So I just think this is, you know, one of those opportunities when I was talking about Wash and you asked about Mm -hmm. the Atlanta Braves, more opportunities to fall forward is is critical in our sport. Um, All of that is to say the Atlanta Braves very well run, very well led. Alex Anthopoulos is one of the better executives in baseball and obviously they have a young, talented group and overcame a lot this year. Yeah, it, I hearing you say that. I remember when I covered Felipe Alou when he first <clears throat> when he was managing the Montreal Expos, and of course Felipe, the first native of the Dominican Republic, to manage in the majors. And I remember one of him telling us one time, "Yeah, this is a great thing, but you know it'll really be great." He said, "Is when I can be fired and rehired a couple of times and recycled just like everybody else." He said, "That's when I'll know we have arrived." And I think that's uh, exactly. Exactly what you're getting at. Gabe, listen, we really appreciate your time today. Important stuff. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Thanks so much for your leadership in this issue. This issue, And have a great offseason, man. And again, congratulations on a terrific year. Really cool discussion. Thanks for having me. Uh, I feel, feel honored to, to have had this conversation with you guys. Take care. Be Thanks, well. Gabe. Gabe Kapler, manager of the San Francisco Giants, Sporting News National League Manager of the Year. Yeah, the the mental health part of it came that touched home for me. I I can remember going through things and just remembering at the end of seasons, I thought I should have been called well, up and I and I didn't. I don't and now, I'm not, now. What do I do to you don't make a ton of money at the minor league level? Just figuring out things like that. I'm not gonna. I, I remember the story, and I think you told this on the air. Maybe the first time it might have been one of the, the the first year you're on the show about being in San Diego and getting the news that you were that you were being sent in. Yeah, yeah, cried. That's... Not 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 afraid to admit it. I cried. I cried because I'd really never failed at, at that level before, and now just uh, you know, coming to the realization that I had no idea where my career was going. And then now, once once that prospect is off of your name, now what do you do? Now you have to work that much harder, which I nobody I thought worked harder than me. But you just have to do things that much better. You know, your numbers have to be that much larger to to actually say, oh, look at Barker what he's doing now because you're not a prospect anymore. Yeah, it, it hits home. There, there's a fine line, I think, of making it available and mm-hmm. not pushing it on people. That's a really That's the fine line of it because I, you know, I, I'm not, I can't say at that level that I would want that pushed on me, but I, I still want it to be available to me, and there's a fine line there. Yeah, I, listen, I, I think, you know, and I understand, look, Gabe's managing a major league team, so the focus is going to be in the major league yep. level, and that's good, but – It'd be interesting to have it, and you know, I think maybe Gil Kim will join us tomorrow. Maybe we'll ask Gil Kim, like, do, do the, you know, do the Jays are, are, is there stuff in place there for for minor leaguers? You know, uh, I've got to think that there's there's a greater awareness yeah. now in the part of, of of players, and 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 hopefully greater awareness and willingness to talk. Absolutely, somebody even at the big league level like Vladdy, who's went through what he's went through with the mm-hmm. weight and just going through that mentally. That can't be the easiest thing to do. That is it for us. We will be back tomorrow. We'll take your calls. Get your thoughts on the Jays, Major League Baseball. You've been listening to Blair and Barker right here. Sportsnet 590, the fan.